Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. I had not realized it's been so long since I've done an episode. The last one was way back in 2023, December 30th. So sorry for that. But luckily, my disorganization and kind of unconventional way of just posting podcast episodes whenever I want is kind of going to be on brand for the topic that we're discussing today, because I wanted to talk about neurodivergency in people but also my theories about neurodivergency and the potential for it to be in animals. I did a live on this the other day, but I wanted to go into more detail in this podcast, and I know that not everyone likes watching videos, so in an effort to be more user-friendly, I figured it would be fun to do a podcast on it so people could just pop their headphones in and listen to it, because same, that's what I like to do. So that's the topic for today. I want to talk about neurodivergency and then also trauma and how it changes the brain and how how that works for both horses and humans and how we can kind of change the way that we look at things to kind of reflect a more broad understanding of like what our horse might be motivated by in any given circumstance. So hi, hello, my name is Shelby and I have ADHD. I was diagnosed with ADHD like when I was 20 or 21, so quite a bit later in life, but there were signs earlier. However, unfortunately, with like women and female presenting people, it's a lot harder to get diagnosed with ADHD and autism. I think it's getting better now, but basically it was just like viewed as a thing that like boys had. So I didn't get diagnosed or even like flagged for having it. And it really wasn't until I started reading about it online and seeing like neurodivergent support groups and stuff, posting stuff on Instagram and Twitter. And then I did like some autism and ADHD tests and tested like very, very high on the spectrum. And I was like, oh, because prior to that, it had honestly never crossed my mind that it was even a possibility because my understanding of ADHD was entirely created by how we stereotype it. So that's like the whole, oh, a squirrel thing, which I mean, sometimes, sometimes my attention span can be like that, but it's really so much more broad than that. And it's just an entirely different way of thinking. And for me, getting that diagnosis was honestly so freeing and so validating because for my entire life, I have felt like I'm on the fringes of everything else, like that I'm like someone who's basically window shopping the human experience on the outside looking in and who is like a puzzle piece that doesn't quite fit in. I always felt like I was having to try super hard to like be a normal person, kind of like a alien in a human suit type deal. And I felt like I always had to mask because when I didn't, I would get humiliated by my peers, even by teachers. And all in all, honestly, it was just a really stressful experience. Like I was chronically exhausted for so many years of my life because of the sheer effort I had to put into masking my behavior and like portraying myself as not being neurodivergent. And at the time, I didn't know that there was something different about me and that's why it was so much work. I just thought that I was like inherently lesser and that there was something wrong with me. And so getting the diagnosis has been super validating and it's also been kind of the catalyst to like a big journey of self-discovery and kind of changing the way that I go about living my life and changing the way that I perceive myself, which is also why I think I've had a lot of character development, like even just within the last like three or four years, like I've changed a lot as a person. I'm definitely not the same now as I was in my early to mid 20s, because I've had a lot of time to reflect on who I am as a person, who I want to be and how I feel about myself. And a lot of that has been thanks to understanding myself better because of that diagnosis. With that said, I just want to quickly say that I think self-diagnosis is entirely valid because essentially I had diagnosed myself through those online tests and just reading up on it extensively. And I like I knew I had ADHD and going to a psychiatrist was really just about having that validated because they had me basically talk about my experience. And then I brought in like some childhood report cards to prove that it had been like a longstanding thing and that it wasn't like some new thing. And then that's essentially all they did. So The heavy lifting in terms of like getting diagnosed is done by you relaying your experience. So I just want to like help people who don't have the funds or the ability to get the diagnosis from a psychiatrist to understand that like self-diagnosis is valid. The only caution that I would say is that the important thing is just being like honest with like how much the symptoms of like being neurodivergent actually are prevalent in your life because 
for example, everyone can be scatterbrained sometimes, but when it's like an ever present thing in your life that has been a huge struggle and it's not just related to like when you're having busy weeks and whatnot, like then that's where it gets a little different because there's like a little bit of these traits in everyone, but it's just like the prevalence of them that really makes the big difference. So self-diagnosis is valid. And I also want to validate anyone who has felt different because like I know what it feels like and like I cannot stress enough how exhausting it was to mask all the time. And having to do that and having to put so much energy into just trying to behave in a way where I wouldn't get clocked as different or where people wouldn't make fun of me, like it was so mentally and physically taxing. I was so anxious all the time, even if I didn't like externally show my anxiety to the extent that I was feeling it. I was so anxious that I would literally like sweat through my clothing in like high school, particularly because that's when my anxiety hit like a peak. So on top of like the day-to-day trauma that I was experiencing because of like what was going on in my family life and like other really horrible things, I was also being traumatized like every day at school by having to put on like this big act that took so much out of me and that left me like chronically in a state of high anxiety. And that really sucked. So in learning about my diagnosis, it honestly has given me a lot more understanding and just like empathy for horses because like I think about the sheer difficulty that was for me masking despite the fact that like as a person I can advocate for myself more I can look up information like I did about ADHD and learn about myself and get some like closure and comfort from that horses don't have that same escape and essentially a lot of the stuff that we do by ignoring their stress behavior and forcing them to work through things Essentially, that's like forcing them to mask their anxiety and not letting them express it, not letting them seek outlets for what is internally so difficult for them. And learning that about myself has kind of changed the way that I want to approach horses because I like I can only imagine how hard it must be for them to put up with the amount of stuff that people put them through and the expectations that we have for them to put up with inadequate living situations pain, inadequate nutrition, and all sorts of other things in addition to like how they are trained and then expecting them to put up with all of those stressors without being a problem or outwardly reacting at all. It's just a really huge ask. It's a it's an enormous ask. And it's really not and it's really not fair when you get down to it that like we have these expectations for them because like people can't meet those expectations themselves and humans are a, a lot more developed and intelligent and have self-reflection capacities that horses do not so the fact that we hold our horses to a standard where they are supposed to work through trauma fear stress discomfort without mistake and without doing anything to upset or injure us when at their core they're flight animals the fact that we have that expectation when people lack the ability to do that themselves is just so enormously unfair so as a neurodivergent person like I know what it feels like to kind of be targeted and like bullied just for being who I am. It's something that teachers have done to me. It's something that peers have done to me. And it's something that has made me ashamed of being who I am for a very long time. And honestly, it has led to me not even really knowing who I am because I haven't even put the effort into exploring it until more recently. So these last several years have been about me really finding who I am as a person, like what my likes and dislikes are, what my goals and dreams are, and what I actually want to do. Because for so many years, I was just masking, like even to the extent of like my hopes and dreams and like what I wore and like how I behaved, I was masking to such a severe extent that I had no idea who I was. I wasn't in touch with my emotions. I didn't know what I was feeling at any given time a lot of times. When I was younger and I started being really anxious, I just felt like when I'd feel anxiety, I just called it like this weird feeling. I knew it was this weird feeling that was uncomfortable and I didn't like it. And I couldn't connect why it was coming about or what it was. And as I grew older, the same kind of happened because I would be like disassociating from 
from what was actually going on in my life because it was so stressful to just be in the moment. And I was like chronically concerned about how people were perceiving me, like any little look that I would get, any little action. I would hyper analyze what I would say in my own interactions to the extent of like worrying about it for like days at a time, sometimes even weeks and months, just thinking about things that embarrass me and just like obsessing over them. That was kind of why everything was so exhausting. Like I literally hit the point where I was having like, several naps a day and I was so exhausted that I couldn't get through the day without a nap and it led to like a very persistent depression and just a general apathy towards life and not wanting to do things and not finding joy in things that I used to really like and honestly it was really hard and I downplayed all of that because I just assumed that everyone was going through something and that everyone dealt with similar things and that maybe I was just like less good at dealing with it and that I was just inherently inferior to other people. And the same applied to like how I approach school stuff, like me being more disorganized. I was just worse at being a person than other people rather than looking at it as me having my own unique challenges that not everybody has. Because a lot of people are socially comfortable enough that they're not hyper analyzing their decision like what they say and what they do and their their body language and everything to the degree where they they're like anxious all the time and they're overthinking everything but that's what I did my brain was always going a mile a minute and honestly it still does my brain never shuts up I have an internal monologue running 24-7 nonstop thinking about all sorts of different things. It makes sleeping difficult a lot of times because I'll start thinking about all the things that I haven't done during the day or things that are embarrassing, things that I want to do, things that I'm stressed about. And then I get anxious and I can't sleep. And the only things that have really helped me kind of cope with that and kind of reflect and get that under control, have one, been listening to like audiobooks and podcasts with headphones on or music while I'm doing stuff that has like increased my productivity like an insane amount. And two, like journaling and trying to set better routines of self-care because for a while I was just completely ignoring my own need for self-care and just like going through the motions of life and not really caring about anything about myself. And it was really difficult. So For anyone who is neurodivergent or thinks that they might be, like, just know that, like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, thinking differently than other people do. Like, like, in a lot of ways, I see ADHD and autism as, like, a strength because there's ways that people who are neurodivergent like that think and ways that they see the world that are incredibly important. They bring ideas to the table that other people don't even consider. They see things at angles and perspectives that other people are not capable of. And it brings about a lot of creativity and just divergent ways of thinking that are really important in society, even if society doesn't welcome us and doesn't really make it a safe place to be. And I really hope that that changes because what happens is we extinguish a lot of people's personality and sense of self by not allowing them to be themselves and by making them ashamed of who they are to such an extent that they create an entire new persona. And after a while, they might even believe that that's who they are. But there's always these feelings of discontent and upset and general anxiety and just lack of fulfillment because that's not actually what you want to do and you might not be able to put your finger on why those feelings are there but a lot of times it's because you're denying yourself and you're completely leaving your own desires by the wayside to try to impress a population of people who are committed to misunderstanding you and that's what I've also realized is that some people are committed to misunderstanding me because what I have noticed is that like since learning how to mask and like be around neurotypical people and trying to be like them like I've put the effort into trying to understand them and how they think and trying to like assimilate into that culture but on the flip side I don't notice that effort being put into me as a neurodivergent person and it doesn't happen with a lot of neurotypical people where their discomfort with me thinking the way I do and being how I am is then made my problem and then they work to try to make me feel ashamed of it instead of trying to make an effort to understand why I think the way that I do or why I feel things the way I do. They don't want to understand me because there's this perspective, whether they're ready to admit to it or not, that the way they view and feel about the world is righteous and that anyone who doesn't feel that way, there's simply wrong and something wrong with them. 
And since I ha- I've had to mask and try to coexist with neurotypical people, like I have made an effort to understand them and I have made an effort to empathize with their struggles. And I haven't felt that effort being reciprocated by the vast majority of people. I don't find that there's the same effort into understanding neurodivergent people. So it's honestly like people who are different doing all of the heavy lifting to assimilate into a culture that doesn't honor them or their feelings and then never having that given back to them. And I really hope that that changes because that type of attitude in society kind of forces you to abandon yourself at least sometimes to assimilate. And I would be lying if I said that I don't mask at all anymore. I definitely still do, but it's happening less and less and less because I've kind of hit the point where it's like, it's not my job to change who I am when I'm not hurting anyone to make other people more comfortable because me being my authentic self makes them uncomfortable. People don't have to hang out with me. They don't have to like me as a person. They don't have to watch my content. They don't have to interact with me at all if they don't want to. And if it makes them uncomfortable, they can do that. But there's this sense of entitlement where if you share something that makes someone uncomfortable, like especially online, where it's like, oh, you shouldn't share this. This is uncomfortable. You're supposed to only post about horses. And there's this tone policing that goes on that honestly drives me insane because like, I have literally watched neurotypical people, especially men, say things like almost identical to what I have said before. And then people are like acting like they're bringing up this new idea that's so incredibly amazing. But then when a neurodivergent person brings it up before, it's like, you're crazy. You're this, you're that. And it's completely disregarded. And I find that really frustrating. And I just hate the tone policing that goes on towards neurodivergent people in general. I think that like, Generally speaking, I'm pretty clear with what I mean online and like I say what I mean, I say what I'm actually thinking. And if I don't mean something, I don't say it. But I find that a lot of neurotypical people add context to what is being said and done by neurodivergent people, expecting that there's some hidden context because that's kind of a lot of how our society does things is that there's this hidden underlying context, like almost this like passive aggressive communication style where you're supposed to read between the lines and essentially play like a guessing game to get to the bottom of what that person actually means because they're not actually saying what they mean. Whereas I find when I interact with neurodivergent people, for better or for worse, they will tell you what they what they're meaning and what they feel. They're a lot less likely to lie to you and even if it's something that you do not want to hear, they would rather tell you that than be honest and I honestly like that because I don't want to be coddled and misled and led to believe that something is how it's not because in the past I've had that done to me by neurotypical people where they'll make me feel like I am supposed to be included and that I am their friend, but secretly they're shit talking me behind my back and just pretending to be my friend to my face. I would way rather deal with the heartbreak of someone being like, I don't like you. I don't want to be friends anymore than have to go through the humiliation that is believing someone feels a way about you that they have told you they feel, mind you, but really don't because there's some hidden underlying context that you're supposed to be reading between the lines to understand instead of them just articulating how they feel and telling you. And that bothers me because the tone policing that happens to neurodivergent people is largely rooted in them just saying what they mean and not having these hidden contexts or like really flowery ways of trying to get to their point when they could just get to their point. And it's labeled as rudeness, even if there's like no personal attacks. It's it's direct, yes, but that directness is then perceived as rudeness, especially again, especially for women and female presenting people especially for them, because it's a lot more acceptable for men to actually be rude, like take their directness to a point of being rude. That is more accepted than it is for a woman to just be direct and assertive in her perspectives. And this is something that I've kind of had to slowly come to terms with, like with my online presence. Like I get tone policed all the time. I have people telling me that I shouldn't post about politics when I post about human rights stuff and that my page is supposed to be about horses. They don't get to tell me what my page is about. It's my page. My page is whatever I make it. I happen to grow my following over horses, but that doesn't mean that I can't talk about other parts of myself. And like, here's the thing is like, this is one thing that's changed majorly for me is like, I'm not going to pander to people who are requ- who require me to abandon parts of myself and sell out on parts of my morals and ethics and hide those parts of myself for their comfort on my own page. 
As far as I'm concerned, it's like someone walking into my house and telling me what I can and cannot do in my own house. It's a following and a page that I've curated myself. And when people try to tone police me based off of what I can and can't say simply because I've focused a lot on talking about horses, it freaking infuriates me. But that happens all the time. And I do feel that to a large extent, sometimes people are just committed to intentionally misunderstanding me. And I notice this a lot more online than I do in person because I think that facial expressions and tone and like the ability to go back and forth in a much easier way at least somewhat helps with that. But also I think partly in person is that people won't say what they're meaning as much because they're less comfortable doing so. So they might feel these ways, but I never hear about them, right? And what I've noticed is that this commitment to misunderstanding me, it then causes people to create their own narrative to try to like vilify me and alter my perspective to suit whatever their narrative is. Like, for example, I've done a lot of videos on harsh bits and equipment that I don't think is ethical to use on horses. And I'll say like, I don't like these bits and here's why. Like bits are widely abused and misused. There's way too many bits on the market that I don't think should legally be able to be sold. And people will take that and the fact that I've been riding Milo bitless for the last four years, they'll take that and then they run with it. And they go, Shelby is anti-bit. Shelby is against bits. And then there will be situations where it's like all of my horses are barefoot now. Their feet have healed really well. I'm really pro barefoot. There's traditional horseshoes that really need to be developed further. It's very archaic how we still use these metal open-heeled horseshoes and have essentially used the same thing for years. And then people will take that and go, she's anti-shoe. She thinks shoes are abuse. When from my perspective and what I have said is that there is need for improvement, but there's this attitude in the horse world that if you admit there's any need for improvement or any problems anywhere, it somehow equates to you being entirely against a specific concept. And that drives me crazy because it's not what I've said. It's people deliberately taking what I say out of context to serve their own narrative. And I find that this happens to a lot of neurodivergent people. And it just happens to a lot of people in the welfare sector in general because it's beneficial to people who don't want to listen to what we're saying to kind of rewrite what we're actually trying to say to serve their narrative and make it seem much more extreme than it actually is so that it's easier for them to justify their lack of desire to listen to any of it. And I've just noticed that be a partic particularly prevalent thing with neurodivergent people. And I also find that there are a lot of neurodivergent people in the horse world, again, whether they realize it or not, because I think that horses and like animals in general are a common interest for people who have ADHD and autism or any other type of neurodivergency, because animals in general don't judge you. You don't have to mask around your animals. They're not going to humiliate you. They're not going to pass judgment on you using like superficial standards and it's inherently more comfortable to exist with creatures like that because you're not constantly having to be on guard and masking and I think that's why so many people resonate with animals when they're neurodivergent and that's also largely I think what saved me for so many years and made life more tolerable is like the barn was somewhere where I felt I could belong I still ran into issues with people with like my neurodivergency where I'd be humiliated or made to feel stupid or just not really treated the nicest in terms of like how my learning style worked. But the barn was somewhere where I felt that I belonged with the horses. It was somewhere where I felt like I was actually decent at what I did and where I felt more safe. And that helps me kind of cope for a lot of years. And it was super beneficial for that. So I think that horses have a really amazing healing power. And I also think that like horses in particular, being flight animals who live like in the moment, they're very clear with how they're feeling and they're a very emotive animal. And I think that resonates with people who are neurodivergent because if you sit there and you just like listen and you watch them, you can learn a lot of stuff. And that's really, really special. So I think that's why there's a lot of neurodivergent people in the horse world because I think that there's like you resonate with them more and there's like a different type of connection with animals because from day one pretty much you can always be yourself around them and you don't have to worry about altering who you are in order to be accepted by them. So long as you're nice to them, they will accept you for who you are. And even when you're not, like horses are so forgiving that even when we're not nice, they're willing to forgive us and kind of move past that if we start being nice to them again. So I think the relationship that people can have with horses is really special. And I do think that it helps people cope with being like different and feeling like left out and 
not accepted in the rest of society. And I think that's really special. So going into like my theories on like animals and neurodivergency, where I want to start is that I'm just of the mind that with the amount of abnormalities and like differences and divergencies people can have in all aspects of health, including like how their brain anatomy functions, I find it really hard to believe that other mammalian species don't see at least similar types of divergencies because I don't think that it's realistic to have animals that we've like selectively bred and like all these bloodlines that have been bred for a purpose and like the trauma that horses have collectively gone through as they've created our society for us. I don't think it's realistic to have that happen without any type of anomaly occurring at any point, even if just their brain changing in accordance to the trauma that they experience. Because with people, we know that trauma rewires the brain. Traumatized people think differently than those who aren't haven't experienced high degrees of trauma your amygdala tends to enlarge when you're in a state of stress and like where you've been traumatized and like that is of benefit from the standpoint of then you're more reactive and like alert and hyper vigilant and yes it is physically exhausting because boy I've been there I'm sure if I got my brain scanned they'd be like wow you've got a really like jacked amygdala (laughs) But the amygdala serves the purpose of basically reacting to potential threat responses. So horses as a species have large amygdala because as a flight animal, this is highly important. And the reason why I want to briefly go over this brain anatomy is because it's important for understanding why horses react the way that they do and why it's beneficial to people in training to keep things low stress. So when horses are in a high degree of stress, they can actually bypass the thinking part of their brain and go straight to the amygdala, which will create flight movement to get away from potential threats without them even really processing what the threat is. And the purpose of this is that if they were out in the wild and there was a predator and they heard a branch snap and a predator launched out at them, they wouldn't really, their brain doesn't have time to process, oh, that is that is dangerous. So the amygdala creating movement and causing them to flee and run in circumstances like that is a life-saving measure. So this is how their brain functions. So what this means is a lot of times when horses react, especially to major stressors, they haven't necessarily processed what they're even reacting to. And this is where we can be like, oh, like you've seen that before. Why are you reacting? You're spooking at nothing. Even if it's just like a flinch response, right? Like these are, this This is how their brain functions. They're, they're wired to be hypervigilant. They have an, a large amygdala that helps create active responses to fear to help them run away. So if we actively are stressing them out in training and making them be highly hypervigilant and stressed out, we need to keep that in mind because when they are stressed, they're the most likely to engage in those types of responses. And this is something that hasn't been understood or honored with horses for years because when they were working animals and we needed them to build the world that we have today, we needed them to just kind of like shut up and get the work done. There wasn't time to really care about how they felt about things emotionally or physically. They just had to kind of cope with what they were dealing. And it just had to be something that they put up with because we needed them to work. But nowadays, where they're mostly a luxury animal, like we do, we have the ability to consider their emotional experience and their physical experience a lot more. And what I do want people to consider is that like a lot of horses, I would argue even most horses have trauma that has happened in their life. Like I would say the earliest trauma most horses experience is the trauma of weaning. A lot of people still wean cold turkey where they remove the foal and the dam all at once. And the foal goes from being at its mom's side 24-7 to suddenly no longer having that comfort at all. And that is a very traumatic experience, even if you put them out with other friends. So that's the earliest trauma that the vast majority of horses do experience. And then you go on to like traumatic ways of being haltered. Like if people are fighting with a horse and like basically manhandling it to get the halter on for the first time, being hard tied, being saddled and ridden for the first time in a way that's really scary, being abused or punished in like a very harsh manner. Like these are all traumas that can really alter a horse's perspective on the world. Another example would be like severe neglect. So like in Milo's case, he 100% has trauma because he was starved for the first two years of his life. And 
the other thing to consider in his case or like horses who are like the same age range as him is that there's certain periods of time where horses are going through profound developmental stages where they're going to be way more impacted by the things that happen to them. So when they are traumatized at these young, highly developmental stages in life, they're more likely to carry that trauma with them for life. So like for in Milo's case, like he didn't know what it was like to receive food and be fed for the first two years of his life. So despite the fact that he's now turning 12 this year, so like he's a decade out of that type of treatment style and he's lived way more years of his life being fed than not, that early life memory and just the the trauma of being hungry and not being able to receive it and how he was probably treated by his dam and other horses in the herd because they were so hungry that they were probably resource guarding and food aggressive. His mom probably wasn't able to produce the amount of milk that a typical baby would have access to. And it might even be painful for her for him to nurse, right? So like there's certain things that as a youngster, even socially by other horses, that he might have experienced punishing experiences from simply by default of all of the other horses he's around or also dealing with a collective trauma and dealing with the stress of not being fed that then results in them adopting stress behaviors themselves and increases reactivity and food aggression so his social skills are a little bit different than other horses like he very rarely mutually grooms i saw him mutually groom for like probably the first or second time with like Pogo and Banksy and he'll do it occasionally with them but usually not and I think it's probably because his dam was too emaciated and sick to really teach him how to groom and teach him these important life skills and he didn't learn how to be a normal horse so trauma has changed how his brain functions it has changed how he perceives the world and it's made him a different horse than he likely would have been without that trauma being the start to his life even now like if he had lived a normal life as a youngster but then been starved for two years as like a six to ten year old the likelihood of it doing the same amount of damage as like the early life trauma did i think would be a lot lower obviously i can't for sure prove that because there haven't really been studies done on that to my knowledge and that's just conjecture but it's also what i've noticed from handling other horses who have been starved at later periods of their life but have had years where they were comfortable and fed and had their needs met prior to that. So trauma changed his brain. And the same could be said about lots of horses. Like, unless you know your horse's full and complete history, and honestly, even then, because people will sometimes be in denial about how they have contributed to traumatizing their horse and won't necessarily view what they've done as trauma, even if the horse has a really big reaction to something. But honestly, like, anytime something scary happens to the horse and then they start avoiding, like, a certain place or person or object or whatever, like, that is a trauma response in itself where something was so unpleasant and scary that they've now made the decision to just completely avoid the thing and it might be a more minor trauma response as far as things go but a lot of horses have experienced trauma and unless we know their whole life it's honestly of benefit to just like give them the benefit of the doubt and assume like if they're really afraid of something and they're having really big reactions that there could be a source of trauma there even if it seems like it's a silly stupid thing that they shouldn't be reacting to Giving them the benefit of the doubt in those moments, I think, is so, so important. And it's something that we don't really do in the horse world and that we're largely not encouraged to do by other horse people and trainers because it's viewed as this mentality that they should just like work through it and that they're doing things specifically to be naughty and just disruptive and defy their riders, which is doing them such a disservice because. They don't have the brain anatomy to plot things out simply for the purpose of being difficult. Like people have a highly developed prefrontal cortex and more most predators have a more developed prefrontal cortex because it helps them plan how to hunt and decide what to do in those instances. So it's actually beneficial for hunting and survival, right? So that's why predators have these brain anatomies. But for a flight animal, it's more beneficial to them to be in the moment and be like hyper vigilant and aware of what's going on right in front of them and like not be either reminiscing on the past or thinking about the future. Living in the moment allows them to be the most aware of potential predators and threats. So it's actually of benefit to flight animals to have that happen. So they don't have a highly developed prefrontal cortex. So 
we don't have any evidence that horses have the ability to like plot and plan with like the purpose of having certain outcomes because they just simply don't think that way. That's a perspective that humans are projecting onto them to try to make up excuses for why horses might be behaving a certain way. And it's not really fair to the horse because it results in us being a lot more harsh and impatient with them when nine times out of 10, they're reacting to something that's bothering them or that's stressing them or they're more frustrated or even like 10 times out of 10, I would even go as far to say like they're never doing it to like plot to defy their handler. And even let's pretend that were possible. Then the question should be, why do they feel the need to go to these lengths to try to evade working with this person if they're supposed to enjoy their job? So regardless of like what people choose to believe, I think the important thing to look at is to go, what motivation would they even have to do this, even if it was possible? Because either way, no matter how you slice it, it is a sign that they do not enjoy what they're doing and they're actively seeking out ways to get out of it if that's what people want to believe. But there's not evidence that they can do that. So now going into like neurodivergency, again, like a lot of the divergence we divergencies we see in horse behavior and how they think could be completely related to like trauma responses and how that's impacted their brain and also like poor socialization, not living proper lives where they have access to other horses and like turnout and ability to interact with space. A lot of what we see that makes horses seem different than like what they should be at normal is probably related to some form of trauma due to neglect of needs, stressful training and handling, lack of socialization, lack of space, and just like general environmental frustration. I'm sure a ton of it can be explained by that. So with respect to that, when I'm mentioning neurodivergencies, just consider that that could be the catalyst for such divergencies developing. Like a foal who hasn't been properly socialized is going to develop with a different type of brain than a well-socialized foal who has learned how to interact with other horses. And then the foal who hasn't been well-socialized might miss other social cues from horses who are well socialized and start causing problems in herds where they are either the victim of a lot of aggression because they're not understanding prior warning signals or maybe they're the perpetrator of aggression because they're getting defensive and scared because they don't understand why other horses are being mean to them right and it's a different way of thinking and even like especially if it's like a early life trauma situation it can be something that's really really hard to fix or that like they'll never be at baseline normal like what a well socialized horse would be like you could get them to the point where they can coexist in a herd with like practice but they might never properly know how to interact with horses in the way that horses who have grown up in herd settings their whole lives do and a great example i have of this is actually with my mustangs their social repertoire in terms of how they interact with other horses how they go about giving their warnings how they answer to warning signals of other horses is far beyond that of most domesticated horses they very rarely escalate to the point of physical contact they operate a lot off of very subtle warnings and then the warnings will get louder if they need to but they oftentimes do not have any physical contact whereas the stress and frustration that can come with a domesticated lifestyle oftentimes results in horses doing physical connection more often especially in small spaces where they'll bite each other or they'll kick threat and actually connect but maybe lighter than what they would if they were actually going for like a full-on like fire out shot right and they tend to get aggravated quicker and respond more big to certain stimuli when they're frustrated or when they're trying to like tell other horses off. And there's also a lot more resource guarding. The Mustangs do not resource guard as much. Like I do see some resource guarding specifically during clicker training where they'll resource guard a person. But that's really honestly just Mesa doing that for the most part. Juniper doesn't really do that at all. And they're really happy to share with other horses like with their hay and anything else whereas i've noticed domesticated horses will resource guard their hay more even when they have like free choice hay and milo is a good example of that like he resource guards the most which makes sense based off of his track record of being starved because it's altered his brain and the way he looks at it probably is that one the older horses that he grew up with would have been resource guarding stuff from him and he would have been bullied off of food. So when he did get food, it would have been a very high value resource that he needs to eat quickly and that he needs to maintain access of. Otherwise, he's not going to live. And so now that he's older and he is able to push other horses off of food, he needs to have precedence over any food to feel like safe. 
And he's gotten better as he's aged where he will share food. But like initially when it's like new food being like left out, he won't share initially. And then after he kind of settles in and realizes that the resource is there and that it's fine, he will then share with friends and it's it's all right. But if at any point he feels something is new or in limited resources, he will resource guard more, whereas I don't see this behavior as much with the Mustangs. And I'm sure you could get Mustangs that would resource guard quite heavily, but I would almost guarantee that it's the result of either not having enough resources in the wild if they were in a place where there's drought or a lot of it in my opinion would come from the holding pens because there's a lot of horses in a relatively small area and there could be resource guarding and frustration because of that because you now have horses who have the collective trauma of being forcibly removed from their herds and having bonds severed and then thrown out with a bunch of horses that they may or may not even know who they are then fighting with so there can be a lot of trauma from that And with Mustangs in particular, I would say the collective trauma is honestly related to like human-induced trauma, which is why you tend to get some big responses when it comes to people handling them and why they kind of have the reputation of being rank, difficult to train horses, when really they're responding to the collective trauma of having their like first interactions with people really be super, super unpleasant where they were ripped away from their herd in a very very stressful way taken into a facility where they are then moved along by a chute system where people are pushing them forward with like pressure by way of like a plastic bag on the end of a stick or simply like they're just their body coming towards them and the horse wants to run away so people have been it's they've learned that people are a source of stress and then naturally they're going to be really nervous and cautious about anything people do with them as a result of that. So it is a trauma response to that as well. And I think that's a trauma that is really undervalued with Mustangs is the trauma of just getting ripped away from the herd and having those bonds severed and how that might alter the way that they think. Like my Mustangs don't seem to be particularly herd bound, but like in the event that anyone did get one that was, it's honestly like, can you blame them? Because they would have been torn away from their family in a very traumatic manner. So neurodivergencies in the horse brain I think are something people should consider if you have a horse that learns differently that seems to be more chronically afraid of things and unsure that has sensory issues or anything like that like just to consider the fact that there is the possibility that your horse is just different in their brain makeup and that they need more time or more consideration in certain circumstances and doing so will make you a better trainer because realistically like you shouldn't you shouldn't need to know the full story to just give them compassion that they need in the moment. And the same applies to people. You shouldn't need to know that someone has autism or ADHD to give them compassion and patience. They shouldn't have to disclose that part of themselves just to be respected by people and to have their presence as a human be valued. They shouldn't need to say that. But it's often something that people do feel the need to say in order to have people be at least a a little bit more understanding of them. And less likely to kind of blame them for not learning fast enough or for being disorganized or having like these natural weaknesses that are just honestly a result of like how differently their brain works. But then they also have a lot of strengths. So the same goes for horses. Horses who've been traumatized or who potentially have some type of neurodivergency, they might have weaknesses where they're more afraid of certain stimuli, but they'll also have strengths, especially if you work with them rather than against them. Like, for example, Milo's trauma has made him so that, like, he's honestly an excellent trail horse. He's really brave, even if, like, he, he, he'll he be snorty and nervous when he sees stuff that he's afraid of, but he's always willing to approach it. He's not likely to bolt and run. If you give him the time to look at it and process it, he'll go. He's very resilient. He can hold his own really well in a herd, and he's just a survivor. Like, there's a lot of strengths that he's learned despite his trauma, but then he has the weaknesses where if you're too rough with him or add too much pressure, he gets on the defensive and can be aggressive in those circumstances. But that aggression is only displayed when he's made to feel trapped and threatened by how people are behaving. So I wouldn't even really personally consider that a weakness, but trainers who train that way would. And the same can be said about any number of horses. Horses can have physical weaknesses that are due to their physical conformation. They can have mental weaknesses that can be due to a difference in their brain their brain capacity and thinking. And they can also just be more sensitive to things. Like certain horses are way more sensitive to sensory stimuli. Milo's one of those horses. When his tail gets wet and it touches his legs, he hates it. <laughs> and 
yeah, like it seems like a minor thing, but it bothers him. And like, I relate to that because there's certain textures and like touches that I can't tolerate and that make me feel uncomfortable. And like, there's like spiders crawling all over me and I hate it so much. So just giving that kind of same perspective to horses, I think would be beneficial because they can have differences in how they sense and interact with the environment. Some horses might be way more sensitive to noise and like visual stimuli, like changes in light. They might be more sensitive to physical touch. And this is like something to take it with a grain of salt within reason because like a horse trying to bite you when they do the girth up, like while they could be more sensory sensitive, that's probably due to an underlying pain source, right? But like horses will have different types of preferences in terms of how they like being touched and they might be more sensitive to certain types of sensory stimuli. Like another example would be like spraying a spray bottle on horses. Most horses start out not liking that, but some hate it way more than others and it's way harder for them to get used to because it's just so aversive. Or the hose, for example. These are things that some horses will get over a lot quicker and others won't and they need more time. And these are things that we should be patient with because the fact that we need horses to get used to these things isn't really an excuse to just force them to get used to it very fast on our timeline without any consideration for like their emotional capacity and like how they're feeling in the moment odds are like unless you're in an emergency like you're not really going to need to use a spray bottle in an emergent situation like if the flies are really bad you can spray a sponge and wipe it down and get them used to it slowly rather than traumatizing them and like forcing them to run in circles around you as you spray them right like you can start off slowly and make it a more pleasant experience and then the also thing to consider is that like between winter and summer or spring when the flies are gone over the winter and they come back horses might need to be reintroduced to these stimuli because it might be a situation where they are it's more aversive and physically uncomfortable to them after time off of practicing it and that happens with a lot of horses so i think it's important to start to reframe our thinking because we have this mindset that we know exactly how our horses are feeling in every given moment and that we are like inherently superior at like understanding why they're doing the things that they do when honestly the average horse person isn't because they're not taught to read horse behavior accurately or properly and it is hard for me now especially like with that what I've learned about myself and also with what I've studied horse behavior it's hard for me now to see that type of stuff happening even more so than what it might have been in like the like previous years as I started to change my methodology it's hard for me to see because like I know how it feels to have someone not listen to me when I'm trying to advocate for myself and I know how it feels to not have people advocate on my behalf even in moments where I really needed it I know how it feels to have people watch abuse or mistreatment be inflicted on me and not do anything about it even if they're in a position where they very easily could and So seeing horses who are kind of trapped by these circumstances is something that's really hard for me now because I relate to it a lot. And I also have like a sensitivity to like injustices of all kind because I just find it so frustrating that there's these things that we can just allow to happen in society despite the fact that they really negatively impact people or beings. And that's also why like I post so much about like social justice stuff on my pages because like there's just things that go on on a very frequent basis in the world that are just so inherently unjust that like I could spiral thinking about it. Like I could honestly put myself in a depression if I really just thought about how profoundly sick the world is on all levels. So I try not to spiral, but I also feel like At the very least, I want to just do whatever I can. And if talking about something and raising awareness gets even one person to kind of reconsider their perspective on something, that's a win because the world is very sick. And I think the sickness in the human world is also then like projected onto how we handle horses as well. And that if people had more of their needs met and actually felt like they had more true autonomy in their day-to-day life, 
where they weren't like pressured to work for survival and living paycheck to paycheck because they know if they don't go to work, they're not going to be able to eat or have shelter over their head. If it was viewed as the default just to give people their basic needs, regardless of whether or not they earn it, it would create a lot more safety in society for people. And that's something that I truly believe. I don't think that your right to live should be something that you have to earn by being like productive in terms of producing wealth. Because as it stands now, we know that the vast majority of the world's wealth is held by a tiny group of people. So with that in mind, it's like if you redistribute even just some of that, it would provide homes, food, water, and shelter for all of the people who cannot provide that for themselves. And so the ability to do so is there. It's just poorly allocated because for whatever reason, we've created this narrative that people who hoard wealth are deserving of doing so because there's this belief that they worked harder which isn't the case if you look at how a lot of them inherited their wealth and how their wealth is created on the backs of people who are making way 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 less and it's just inherently unethical so then that entitlement to labor is then i think projected onto horses and it colors our viewpoints on everything and i think people feeling trapped in their own day-to-day life and trapped by the circumstances of the world and not seeing a way out is then something that is creating frustration and like anger and aggression and like depressive responses in them whether they realize it or not because it is an ever-present threat like living in a city where you have to walk by people who are living on the streets and aren't getting any help is difficult and like i've had people be like oh well like they made the choice they use drugs blah 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 blah. i don't freaking care if someone uses drugs they still deserve a place to live and it the same goes for like any like horse you work with they shouldn't have to be like a good citizen that can do what you want them to and behave in the way that you want them to to deserve respect and kindness and having their needs met that should just be the default even if they're difficult they shouldn't be it shouldn't be a situation where they have to be like likable in your perspective or palatable in your perspective in order to be deserving of that treatment but that's something that we have very much made a thing in our society and It's honestly just like so disappointing because it doesn't serve anyone. Like I think even the people who are openly in support of societal standards that are harmful to marginalized groups, I think that it actually doesn't serve them. I think that it impacts their mental and physical well-being, whether they realize it or not. I think that the people hoarding the wealth are trying to fill a gaping hole inside of their soul by buying shit. And it's clearly not doing the job because there's it's never enough for them. They can never satiate that desire to continue hoarding wealth because they are empty inside. And this is something that I truly believe. And so like my perspective change and like how I view the world is like, like, I don't even think I can encompass it into an entire podcast at all because like it's so nuanced and it's the same thing with the way I view horses. I can be frustrated with the way people train and take care of their horses without thinking those people are evil, irredeemable people. I talk about the things that I do because I think that it can change minds. If I didn't think that people could change, one, I would be a hypocrite because I used to be one of the types of people that I would have an issue with the way that they did things and I've changed. And two, then there would be no point in talking about these things and repeating myself like a broken record if I didn't believe that there is any room for change. But I firmly do. Like, I do believe that people can change. I do believe that the industry can heal. And I do believe that we can kind of alter the mindset that we have towards horses. Because what I also think is that the more we do that and the more people who start to just try certain things, it'll start to be reinforcing to them because they'll realize how much better it makes them feel. In the same way that like for me, changing my self-care and my perspective of myself, initially I resisted and I was like, this is stupid. These things aren't going to help. They just seem totally pointless. And when I started doing them, I realized the benefit of how they made me feel. And then it made me more likely to continue repeating that. And the same was true with like when I started clicker training, I started off using a little bit of it and still mostly doing stuff a very traditional way. But then when I started seeing how it worked and how much happier my horses were, then that was like all of the incentive that I really needed to keep doing it because it was just very clearly beneficial and it was very reinforcing to me. And I noticed my own mental health and like my own anxiety improving in tandem with my horses. 
And it was also kind of necessary, too, because honestly, Milo was so fried by the end of like 2020, 2019-ish, that he hated his job and it's like how are you going to make a horse like their job without providing an actual incentive that they find valuable they like like just releasing pressure isn't something that he finds valuable or likes so it just didn't make sense and then the more i've seen his perspective change even though it's taken a long time like it's been a long road rehabbing his feet and like i've barely gotten to ride him over the last four years like it's only been within like the last year and a half that i've really been able to bring him back into more consistent work with this year in particular being one where he's felt the best that he has in a very long time and it's been a long time coming and it's frustrating and like honestly like yeah i would have wanted it to go faster but at the same time if you push things too fast then you lose any momentum that you've built by making them feel comfortable and heard if you push them before they're ready so it was something that was necessary but like it wasn't like i wanted to have him take this much time off of riding and showing because like he's my favorite horse to ride but it was out of necessity for his well-being and then seeing how much it's improved our relationship and his general happiness and his overall rideability and just participation in what we do, seeing how much it's improved that has been like all of the reinforcement that I needed in making that decision. And really my only regret is that I hadn't done it sooner. Like I really wish that I had discovered this sooner so that I could have done better by him sooner and made him feel more heard sooner because I can only imagine how frustrating it would be to like be screaming to someone who you trust and who takes care of you in other circumstances and just have them perpetually ignore you year after year, even as you're screaming and like going through the motions of doing what they ask, but trying to tell them like, hey, like I'm in pain, either physically or emotionally or both, and then not having them hear that. And like, honestly, it's really upsetting to think about that because like I can only imagine how he was feeling in those moments and I'm really regretful that I didn't listen to him better because I did him a massive disservice in being like that and that's also why I talk about these things so much regardless of whether it makes people uncomfortable because I think it's an important topic. I was made exceptionally uncomfortable by a lot of the things that I now talk about openly because I wasn't ready to hear them. And like deep down, I knew that there was some level of validity to them. And it made me very, very uncomfortable because I didn't want to have to change the way that I did things from where I was comfortable and what I'd always known. And I didn't really see a way out. And I didn't see like a, a, a proper solution. Like there was no clear path. So I pushed against that change and prolonged it because of that. But in the long run, it's been so worth it. And I wish I did it earlier. And like, my only hope is that in sharing the story that I can make people feel more validated in their journey. Because also like for people who are neurodivergent, I find a lot of them are oftentimes more willing to try rewards-based methods. But then also like if they work with trainers who are not open to that, they're also very rejection sensitive and really sensitive to like how they're spoken to. And you'll frequently be talked down to by talking about these things or wanting to do them because people will treat you like you're stupid and I'm hoping that like as a professional in the industry and a neurodivergent person who's sharing my story that'll help encourage people to just do it anyways and feel in their hearts that they're doing the right thing even if people try to make them feel stupid about it because those people are just projecting like their own insecurity or their own lack of knowledge onto you and they don't want you to try something new that they don't know anything about and that honestly makes a lot of people feel triggered because it's uncomfortable to watch someone reinforcing a horse with food rewards or something that they like and trying and caring a lot about like how the horse perceives the training interaction when they don't feel that and when they don't want to feel that because it would alter the way that they would approach horses like a lot of people would have to take breaks from showing and would have to do complete resets with their horses like with what I did with Milo because a lot of those horses are chronically stressed so a lot of people do not want to do that and so they push back against all of that and don't really want to put the work in and then anyone who's willing to do that inherently makes them feel triggered. So that's my thoughts on neurodivergency in people and animals or just like some of them I should say because I have a lot of thoughts. If you're interested in reading like more of my story on like being neurodivergent growing up and like the trauma that I went through and like how teachers treated me and whatnot. I do have a book where I've written about all of this and kind of how my mindset and perspective shifted with like 
horse training and it's called the other side of horsemanship i'll link it in the description of this podcast or you can just go to my website milestoneequestrian.ca to check that out buying my book sharing about my book or subscribing to patreon or shopping my store all of these things are great ways to support me and help me continue doing what i'm doing because i do put a lot of free time into making resources and writing and whatnot and it is time consuming, but I really like doing it. So I appreciate any and all of your support. Patreon is where I post most of my tutorials and more training information. So if you're looking on how to get started, that's a great place to go. Uh, you can subscribe for like as little as like $15 a month to access all of the tutorials. And there's like well over 50 plus tutorials. And then we also do monthly Q&As that are accessible to like anyone, even if you only subscribe for like $1 a month, they're accessible to everyone. So you can do that at patreon.com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, and I'll post that down below as well. And then I also have my store where I sell horse bridles, leather neck ropes, all sorts of different types of riding clothes and like graphic printed designs. Like I just released a barefoot hoof moon phases one that I absolutely love. And you can check all that out at shop milestone ek. That's shopmilestoneq.com. And I'll also link that down below in the description. And as always, it's always appreciated whenever you like share my podcast or like any of my posts or follow my pages or any of that stuff. All of that stuff helps support me in what I'm doing. And it's really immensely appreciated because I have some big projects in the works, but I am just but a small bean who's doing this all myself and it's it is very stressful especially as an adhd person like i'm like what the fuck am i doing um like i'm like how am i doing this like geez geez louise like i like i fake it until you make it that's basically what i've done so like if you've ever wondered whether or not you can do something i just say just do it just try fake it until you make it because also like I don't like the guy, but Donald Trump has served as an inspiration to me because if someone that incompetent can be elected into one of the most powerful offices in the world, like, we can do anything. So we need to just have the audacity of a belligerent white man who has grown up with, like, a silver spoon in his mouth. So just have, like, even a shred of that audacity and just pursue your dreams and just do what you want. And anyways, thank you for listening. Happy riding and doing whatever you do happy life living and i hope this made people feel more validated and just heard in what they do and yeah let me know your thoughts if you enjoyed this uh, always feel free to give like suggestions for topic ideas and whatnot i'm always open to any of that and it also helps me with the inspiration because i kind of just have to like make these when i have like a spark of muse to do so anyways thank you everyone and have a great day thanks for listening to the making milestones podcast